the, the Puritan Stephen Charnock in his great work, The Existence and Attributes of God. He spends a good deal of time writing about spiritual worship and specifically the connection of love and worship. He writes this. I want to read you a quote. It's it's a little bit long, but I, I know you can handle it. He says this. Love must be acted to render a worship spiritual. Though God commanded love in the Old Testament, yet the manner of giving the law bespoke more of fear than love. The dispensation of the law was with fire, thunder, etc., And it was proper to raise horror and benumb the spirit which effect it had upon the Israelites when they desired that God would speak no more to them. Grace is the genius of the gospel, proper to excite the affection of love. The law was given by the disposition of angels with signs to amaze. The gospel was ushered in with songs of angels, composed of peace and goodwill, calculated to ravish the soul. Instead of the terrible voice of the law, do this and live, the comfortable voice of the gospel is grace. Grace. Upon this account, the principle of the Old Testament was fear. And the worship often expressed by the fear of God. The principle of the New Testament is love. The Mount Sinai gendereth to bondage, as Galatians 4.24 says. Mount Zion, from whence the gospel or evangelical law goes forth, gendereth to liberty. And therefore the spirit of bondage unto fear as the property of the law is opposed to the state of adoption, the principle of love as the property of the gospel, Romans 8.15. And therefore, the worship of God under the gospel or New Testament is oftener expressed by love than fear as proceeding from higher principles and acting, acting nobler passions. In this state, we are to serve him without fear, Luke 1.74, without a bondage fear, not without a fear of unworthily treating him, with a fear of his goodness. Goodness is not the object of terror, but reverence. God, in the law, had more of a garb of a, of a judge, in the gospel, of a father. The name of a father is sweeter and bespeaks more of affection. As their services were with a feeling of the thunders of the law in their consciences, so is our worship to be with a sense of the gospel of grace in our hearts. Spiritual worship is that, therefore, which is exercised with a spiritual and heavenly affection proper to the gospel. The heart should be enlarged according to the liberty the gospel gives of drawing near to God as a father, as he gives us the nobler relation of children, we are to act the nobler qualities of children. Love should act according to its nature, which is desire of union, desire of a moral union by affections, as well as a mystical union by faith. 
as flame aspires to reach flame and become one with it. In every uh, act of worship, we should endeavor to be united to God and become one spirit with Him. This grace does spiritualize worship. In that one word, love, God hath wrapped up all the devotion He requires of us. It is the, the total sum of the first table. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. It is to be acted in everything we do. But in worship, our hearts should more solemnly rise up and acknowledge Him, amiable and lovely, since the law is stripped of its cursing power and made sweet by the blood of the Redeemer. Love is a thing acceptable of itself, but nothing acceptable without it. The gifts of one man to another are spiritualized by it. We would not value a present without the affection of the donor. Every man would lay claim to the love of others, though he would not to their possessions. Love is God's right in every service, and the noblest thing we can bestow upon him in our adorations of him. God's gifts to us are not so estimable without his love, nor are services valuable by him without the exercise of a choice affection. Hezekiah regarded not his deliverance without the love of the deliverer. In love to my soul, thou hast delivered me. Isaiah 38, 17. So doth God say, in love to my honor, thou hast worshipped me so that love must be acted to render our worship spiritual. That was a long quote, but it was a good one. If you do not love God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you're not worshiping Him. No service, serving of one another, no singing, no burnt offerings, no tithes. Your, your giving to the church, your money, is no good if you have no love for God. This is huge if it's true. Now, this does not mean that God cannot or will not use our serving or even our money if we're giving and have no love for Him. It means that you're in a very real spiritual danger. So what Stephen Charnock was saying in that, in that long quote, is really what we saw last week. And it's the theme of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to make an atonement, to pay the penalty and completely remove them and their curse from us. And again, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So here's how this works. Thinking of love. God the Father, because of his great love for his people, and remember, God is love, 
The Father sent His Son to redeem us from our bondage to sin and set us apart as His own people. He has redeemed us to be a people for His possession. We are saved for His good pleasure. Christ, the Son, said in John chapter 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. He has loved us enough to lay down his life so that we may live. And as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And a few verses later, In the first chapter of Ephesians, we read that he has sent his Holy Spirit and sealed us in him. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As a result... We are then enabled through the Holy Spirit because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, we are enabled then to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. See, through Christ, we can actually keep the law. And when we don't, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember the promises of Jesus from John chapter 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Those are promises. And then from verse 23 of the same chapter, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. At its core, for those of us who are God's creatures, created by God, that's all of us, love is seen in obedience to God's commands, which apart from Christ, because of sin, we simply cannot do. But we are able to rejoice, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so as we read 1 Corinthians 13, we need to read it through the lens of the love of Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father for his Son and his people. And so let's do that now, okay? Remember the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith hope and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love let's pray lord i pray that you would give us what we need this morning as we as we consider these things that we would look at this not as the world looks at love but that we would look at these things and think about these things as you understand love, as you have demonstrated your own love toward us, as Christ has demonstrated his love toward us and towards you, Father, in his obedience to death, even death on a cross. I pray that you give us what we need this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to pick up on verse 8 where we left off last week. We need to be reminded that Jesus' love is a love that never ends, he says. It never fails, some versions say. Or we could just say that, that love continues. Love continues. There's actually a bit of a transition here in this paragraph. Verse 8 begins with, love never ends in the ESV. Some other versions say, love never fails. There's a bit of a transition here, and remember these chapters from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14 are about spiritual gifts. And so the members of the church at Corinth have written to the Apostle Paul a a series of questions that that he's been answering throughout this letter. These were questions that they were asking because of the disputes and divisions that were springing up in the church. They needed his help as an apostle, as one with authority to guide them in the truth. But Paul goes beyond answering their questions to get to the heart of the matter. See, they were concerned with the the nature of spiritual gifts. And in answering them, Paul points them back to love. And so it becomes clear that there is a connection, yet even a distinction between love and and the, and the gifts of grace, the grace gifts, spiritual gifts that we're talking about here. And as Paul develops this idea, the connection and yet the distinction, it becomes clear that, that although love is so beautifully described in this famous chapter, he's composed this, he's written this in order to deal with the specific problems of the evaluation of spiritual gifts, how they were looking at the gifts in each other in the Corinthian church. See, they thought of themselves. They thought of their own gifts as more, more highly than they ought to have. They thought of themselves, many of them did, as more important than others, even in the church. And they especially thought of the sign gifts, like speaking in tongues and 
prophecy and the working of miracles, they especially thought of them to be of special importance. And yet Paul, in fact, develops this this contrast between love and gifts. He actually does it on two levels. The eternal versus the temporal, and then the perfect versus the partial. You'll see this as we walk through this. We can also see that he's where he's going, really, right in this first statement here. Love never ends. Love never fails. Combine that with the, uh, the, the verse 13, the last statement of this chapter. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So we could summarize all of this like this. Love will never be gone. Rather, it will continue. But one day it will continue in a world where the sin that wars against love is altogether removed. So notice the contrast in verse 8. Love is permanent, but gifts are temporary. Look at verse 8 again. Love is permanent, but gifts are temporary. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Love never ends, or as I said, love never fails. The word there actually for ends or fails, it's actually, usually it's translated falls. Love never falls. So for example, in Galatians chapter 5 verse 4, Paul speaks of one who has fallen from grace using that same word. I think we can easily understand that. It's not a literal fall, right? Rather, it's someone who has walked away from Christ, one who has has typically gone back to probably their old sinful lifestyle, or worse. Um, But this word here for fall, it's most commonly used in Greek literature in a literal sense for buildings or bridges that have fallen to pieces or have collapsed, meaning that they have catastrophically failed. That's how this word is usually used. For a bridge or a building that has collapsed, that has catastrophically come to an end. So combine that, that idea of a building collapsing, of a bridge caving in. Combine that with the imagery that Paul has just written to them back in chapter 10, verse 12 when he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, lest he catastrophically collapse his life, lest he come to an end. Remember, we're looking at this chapter through the lens of the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ. And so consider this simple statement, love never ends, love never fails, love never falls. Consider it like this, love never collapses in defeat. Love is never destroyed. Love never falls short. Love never falls apart or fails to have an effect. Love never ceases to exist, even in heaven even in eternity. However, as you consider that, contrast that to the spiritual gifts, particularly these three that he mentions, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Remember, these were the gifts that that the Corinthian church, the Corinthian Christians here, were flaunting and boasting in. Yet Paul is saying that they they have a built-in obsolescence. 
that there will come a time where they will be obsolete. They will be unnecessary and unneeded. And, and remember, these are just examples. He's saying that all spiritual gifts will become obsolete in eternity. They're transitory. They're only suitable for between the times, only for between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom, from between Christ's first coming and his second coming. They have a limited purpose, and when Christ returns, we will have no need of them. Notice that Paul uses the stronger word for cease for one of the gifts, particularly the one where he talks about speaking in tongues. For the others, he uses the kind of the more gentler term, pass away. We do this often when we talk about somebody dying, right? We, we will say that they passed away. We understand what it means. It means the same thing, but we use it in a more gentle way, right? It's hard to think about death sometimes, and so we say, pass away. Um, this probably, when he's talking about tongues and he used the word ceased, that probably surprised the Corinthians because they likely viewed, it's probable, that they viewed speaking in tongues as the highest of the gifts. A lot of people do today as well. They thought of this as a sign of the, of the presence of the heavenly world with them. This is what so many in the sort of extreme charismatic movement do today as well. Yet, tongues will come to an end. Paul clearly says this, and there is no need of them in the next world. Why? Why is that? Well, their introduction, the first time we were introduced to this concept of speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, actually really easily explains this. Listen to this short description of tongues from Acts chapter 2, verse 11. Those who heard the speaking in tongues said this, We hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. This gift was specifically given for the purpose of evangelism, to tell of the mighty works of God. And one day, evangelism will be completely unnecessary. Remember the promise of the new covenant? God made the promise in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There will come a time when we will not need to do, you know that we won't need to do street preaching in heaven on the evangelism, right? We're not going to need to make signs and go out on the streets of gold and we don't need to do that because they will all know me. And today, we've already talked a little bit about the sign gifts a few weeks ago. But today, we have the written, revealed, and completed Word of God that tells us of the mighty works of God. So, if I could speak frankly, we have no need for someone to blabber on in gibberish. Instead, we will submit to the command to preach the Word. And we can say that the same is true for these other gifts of prophecy and knowledge. But the word that he uses here to explain that they will end is that less sharp pass away. 
And he goes on to write, to explain in verses 9 and 10 here. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul is, what Paul is pointing out here is that, is that love is perfect, but the gifts are partial. And again, we have to look at this through the lens of the love of God. Love is perfect, but the gifts are partial. So what does verse 9 mean? Let me read that again. Verse 9. Um, for, we, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. What does that mean? Well, in this context, I could ask it this way. What is knowledge? What is knowledge here that Paul is talking about? It's a knowledge of God's commands. It's a knowledge of his word, his character, and his attributes. We know in part because we only know what he has chosen to reveal to us. So everyone in here, I assume, understands or should understand that we can spend a lifetime learning things, right? Whether it's math or science or language or technology, we can spend a lifetime learning new things about many um, disciplines, right? Well, the same is true about God and his word. In fact, theology has been referred to as the, the queen of the sciences since the Middle Ages. Really, when schools began to divide up into different disciplines and sort of the modern university began to be developed in the late Middle Ages, they started to call theology the queen of the disciplines. We can spend a lifetime searching the scriptures and not come to an end of them, not plumb the depths. In fact, for thousands of, at least 2,000 years, we have built upon those who have come before us in learning and studying the scriptures. I just read from Stephen Charnock. He lived a couple hundred years ago and wrote a couple hundred years ago, and we learn from him in the study of the scriptures. We can spend millennia studying the scriptures and not come to the end of them, not know it all. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, he said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or consider the book of Job, beginning in verse 38. Verses 1 to 6 says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, this is God responding to Job. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And if you know the book of Job at all, you know that those questions go on for several chapters as Job cannot answer and essentially stands there with his hand over his mouth. Our knowledge of God is partial at best. It's limited to what he has revealed to us. Herman Bovink, the great Dutch churchman, said this, that which lies behind revelation is completely unknowable. God's revealed word is what we can know about God. Creation and his revealed word. 
The same is true for the gift of prophecy. Even if, we're, even if when we say prophecy, we're simply referring to preaching, to proclamation, to saying, thus saith the Lord, even such a beneficial gift for the church as preaching, which we are commanded to do, even that will pass away. It is only done in part, and it is not perfect because it is delivered by an imperfect preacher to an imperfect congregation. Right? This is not to say that there is something wrong with preachers and preaching. In fact, Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 3 of his letter to them, beginning in verse 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Christ was given the uh, Jesus, hang on. Paul was given the gift of preaching the gospel, specifically to Gentiles, that we might know Paul was given that gift to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is talking about the gift of preaching there. But compared compared to our future, look at verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The perfect there refers to the coming of Christ and the perfection of all things that is ushered in at the end of this age. And at that point, some things will be unnecessary. They will be done away with. But all that remains, including love, including our existence as the people of God, and all things that are made new, those things are permanent. I read earlier when I first came up here from John's Revelation. Listen to, this is Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. This is John's vision. Listen to this. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now there are some things in the book of Revelation that are hard to understand. But we can get the gist of that, can't we? We can understand what he's saying there. One day we will see God and Jesus Christ face to face. You will need, you will need no preacher then because we will have Christ. Now remember these gifts, and Paul is just using these three as an example. They're given to us 
to get us to that point. They're given to us, as he says when he speaks of a couple of other gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on to say this, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love What about now? What about until we get to that point? When, when, we're, when each part of the body is working properly and we're building ourselves up in love. What about while we wait for the perfect to return? Should you just sit there? Of course not. We're to move on to Maturity. Move on to maturity. It requires both love and the gifts of grace given to us. I'm not trying to downplay the gifts of grace. I'm trying to say that they're for now. And love is a more excellent way. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says this. He says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now that analogy in verse 11 of a child is a common one. We understand what he's saying there. But let's apply it to Corinth in particular. He is saying that the church must grow up so as to see the purpose of the spiritual gifts correctly. This means the understanding that the exercise of love is of far more importance to Christian maturity because it abides than the gifts of knowledge, prophecy, and tongues, which will come to an end. At some point, we all mature into adulthood. We stop behaving like children. But remember, there's nothing wrong with being childish if you're a child right? We have a problem in our society with men acting like boys, women acting like little girls. And, and you could change that sentence all around these last couple of years too, right? But Paul's point here is that the body of Christ will one day mature to the point where the spiritual gifts are no longer needed, where those gifts will will pass away like our childhoods. This is a pointed reminder for churches to grow up into Christ, to stop, to stop singing stupid little ditties about reckless love or being a waymaker, and instead remind one another that our God is a mighty fortress whose faithfulness is great, and a father whose love is vast beyond all measure, and that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. 
don't get me wrong, this isn't about songs. This is a call for the Corinthians to stop being childish, to stop essentially saying to one another, mine, about all of the issues, really everything that he's been addressing throughout this letter. That's, that's what they're doing. Whether he's talking about the teachers and collecting their favorite teachers or whether he's talking about sex, whether he's talking about food, when they come to the table and some are getting drunk on the communion wine and others are going without. He's telling them to grow up because all of these issues are drawing their attention away from Christ and his gospel. And so we must move beyond an immature preoccupation with ourselves and learn to consider that love for and service of one another is God's purpose behind all of the spiritual gifts that he has given us. I mentioned this earlier, we had some news this week. The Supreme Court released its ruling on Friday, which overturned Roe versus Wade. And so it was a time of rejoicing. But it's not yet a time to ble- beat our sh- swords into plowshares, right? There are those even in this room who have given their lives to fighting on the front lines of the battle for life. The church of Jesus Christ has to grow up to maturity because this battle is going to intensify. Do you think the gods of this world will stop now? We all know that they will not. We all know that it's, while it is good and right for us to rejoice right now, the battle is continuing. But the battle belongs to the Lord. There are people in this room who are going to face real persecution and suffering, and it's going to be up to the rest of us to love them and serve them for the glory of Christ. As so many of you have done so faithfully, especially these last few years. We live in an evil age, but as Christians, we await the coming of the perfect age. And until Christ returns, at best, we can see things dimly, as if we were looking through frosted glass as a faint reflection of the glories to come when we will see Christ face to face. And until then, we need to remember that love abides, that it sticks with us, that it never ends. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The emphasis on our love for one another reminds us that, uh, that when we understand love from a biblical point of view, or the point of view of God, it's not some vague feeling of unity or family. Instead, love sees one another just as we are. It sees one another as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so because of this, love acts right? Love acts when we see our brothers and sisters in need. Love weeps with those who weeps and rejoices with those who rejoice. Love cooks. Love prepares meals for one another when we need it. It it cleans each other's houses if we need help. It visits the sick. 
Love makes phone calls and sends text messages and cards. Love prays for those who are suffering. Love gives money for the deacons to administer to those in need. Love collects chains to put in baby bottles every year between Mother's Day and Father's Day to support the ministry. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, and love should be the end result of God's giving gift of grace to the church for the building up of the body of Christ. Our love for one another flows out of Christ's love for us. And the best way to the best way to love one another is to look to the cross. The best way to love one another is to point each other to the cross. The best way to love one another is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, we're, because of his great love for us, Christ died to save sinners. The best way to love one another is to worship together our great God and Savior. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's just stop and pray. Lord, we rejoice that we can even understand what love is. That we are able, even as we come to the table, Lord, as we come to this sort of um, dramatic moment where we hold the bread in the cup, where we eat and drink, Lord, as our, as our senses, not only do we hear from the preacher, not only do we hear from the Word of God, but we, we're actually able to touch and taste and so proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. That we can taste the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we don't presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your mercy, in your grace, and in your love. You are a merciful and gracious God. And so, Lord, as we come to this table to commemorate in the breaking of bread the death of Jesus Christ, as we come and drink of his blood that was poured out for us, the blood of the new covenant, Lord, we do so with grateful hearts. We do so out of love for our Savior. So, Lord, we pray that your name would be praised in our actions, in our love for one another, as we continue our worship, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.